Peter writes that the Lord has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I absolutely believe that. I believe the Bible answers all of the questions that need answering. That it's all here. If you are confused in life, unsure about what's going on, not sure how it's going to end, where you'll end up, the Bible has the answers. And that's why we spend so much time in the Word of God, because the Lord has detailed for us everything we need to know. And there's no, there's no worry about, well, what if we go searching and it's just not there? Okay, if it matters to life and eternity, it's there. So we're in the book of Job this morning, chapter 2. We studied a little bit out of chapter 1 last week. We did chapters 1 and 2 Wednesday night. We're still in chapter 2. I'm not quite ready to depart this area. If you'll follow along, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Father, I am so grateful to you for your word. And so impressed and amazed, Father, how you keep it fresh. How every turn of the page is is enlightening and revealing How, Father, Your Word has the ability by Your Spirit to touch our hearts and not just our minds, to take us into places that we need to go. How it is reviving to the Spirit, Lord. And I pray this morning as we study and we continue to move through Job and and consider his life, his tragedy, his sorrowful circumstances, and his faith, Father, that we would be lifted up and encouraged. I pray that there would be insight revealed to us by your Spirit. And ask even this morning, Father, as we talk about a few more things here in these opening chapters, that you will speak what needs to be spoken. More so, Father, I pray that the church have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us, and nothing more. Just what you would have us hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don, it's good to see you. How are you feeling? We had a great time of prayer uh, Wednesday night. It was noisy. The planes were flying big time. But, um, you know, as much as some of the planes are designed to jam enemy transmissions, you cannot jam prayer. The Lord hears the prayers of His people. The barn was filled Wednesday night with groups of people praying and and interceding uh, for many of you. Um, A lot of prayers have been going up constantly. I know there are several who are facing challenges, life challenges, as as Dawn is with with cancer. And it's your second treatment of chemo? You look good. You look better than I do, and I haven't had any chemo this week. So, go. But it's a powerful thing. It was a great evening. And we continue to pray. And I I continue to challenge and encourage you to pray for each other. And every need you hear of. Just to immediately, don't don't even wait for those times where you go, okay, I've got to wait until I have an hour here set aside just for prayer. No, just offer up the prayer instantaneously. God, be with Don. 
Give him comfort today. You know, Lord, heal Michelle. That quick. He hears the prayers of his people. Well, going on now. Job chapter 2. I, I was looking in the news last week. I, I noticed it was the 2010 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. I know a lot of you have been, I'm sure, following that. <laughs> the Consumer Electronics Show actually is a pretty big deal in the world of technology. In 1998, it was the CES that brought us high-definition TVs. 1998. I got mine, like, last year. 2003, the Consumer Electronics Show unveiled Blu-ray. And I just got my first Blu-ray player from my parents for Christmas. And I opened up the box, and the first thing I saw... Did I tell you about this? First thing I saw in this box was a sheet of paper telling me how to download firmware updates. I just want to play a movie, man! I don't want to go online with my player here. Just, we'll just put the thing in and hit play and watch. Firmware. I'm crying out loud. In 2010, this year, the industry and, of course, geeks alike are very excited by three big standout things. There are over 3,000 exhibits at this thing, all kinds of people touting their new technologies. The three standouts are, number one, Google's new Nexus One Superphone. I don't know if you've heard about that. If you have Google online, you'll see there's a little ad for it, so you can go in and for only a mere, what, 500 bucks, you can buy your own Google phone and, and get going. Apparently, this Nexus One is the fastest, it's got lightning fast speed, it's got multiple applications that you can download or upload to the phone, and I think it actually makes soup, so it might be worth checking out. The second thing, Ford's My Ford Touch. Okay, Ford, the motor company, they have a thing called My Ford Touch. It is a now fully computerized and customizable LCD dashboard. So your whole dashboard in your car, and it's more than just the GPS that some of you all have in your cars. It's everything that you see is computerized, 100%. And you can customize down to the color of the lights in the inside of the car. It does all kinds of things. In fact, they have what they call four-corner technology. Phone, entertainment, navigation, climate control. All there on the dashboard. Entertainment. On your dashboard. And I thought texting while driving was difficult enough. You know, you're driving, you're going to get that little thing. Amazing. You can link all this, by the way, to your iPhone or your BlackBerry device. So you can be doing this and that at the same time while driving and, you know, smoking a cigarette. Well, hopefully not. But incredible. The big announcement this year, however, that, that supersedes all others, is 3D TVs. They think that they're going to be moving some 4 million three-dimensional TVs this year alone. 3D television. I just, I, is it just me, or does technology, knowledge, and information seem to be in hyperdrive? Like, just when I get one thing to try to catch up, to try and stay, you know, moderately with it, they're out there producing all kinds of new things. And I, I guarantee you, Blu-ray's not going to last long. They're going to come out with something else. And, and the thing that bothers me about it, and Corey has heard my rants on this a number of times... It's pseudo-reality. And it seems that more and more in the world of technology, pseudo-reality is attempting to replace reality. Why go outside when I can see the outside in three dimension in the comfort of my living room? Why go for a hike when I can just sit there and the tree is right next to me? Oh, look at that. There goes a bird, you know? We have this... This constant lure, and I think there's something we need to see here. I'm not anti-technology, but we need to see there is a lure away from the real world of creation. There is a lure away from the things of God that He has made that are breathtaking. You can walk outside and look at actual, tangible creation by the hand of God. It's right there for us. I was driving when I was listening to all this stuff being announced on, it was Friday morning, and they were talking about all these things on the radio, and it's crackling and telling me all this incredible news, and I'm driving by Pass Lake, you know, in the morning, when the water was dark blue and the mist was just, just above the water. I love when it does that. You know, and, and the heather along the side of the road was glistening with the morning dew, and I, I was just 
amazed. I just turn the radio off. I don't want the pseudo-reality. I want the real thing. I want what God has made. And I want what God has not only made physically, but spiritually. Actual reality, not, not distraction. Now, the Bible told us this would happen. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 tells us in the end of time, many will go back and forth talking about global travel. Something that was not the case in Daniel's day. Well, there was travel, but not globally like there is today. Many will go back and forth. And knowledge will increase. And the word increase there is not just that people are going to get smarter. It's information will multiply exceedingly. What a picture of the world in which we live. This incredible move of information that is like an unstoppable wave crashing constantly on the shore and it's staying ahead of us. And again, I'm not anti-technology, but we need to be wise to this truth. Distraction is a major ploy of Satan. If he can keep our focus off of what's real, he is winning battles. If he can keep our minds distracted by other things, be it on our dashboard or on our TVs, he is winning something here as he lures us away from what is real. There's a phrase Jesus used when dealing with devilish distractions. On the capricious Sea of Galilee, we talked about this Wednesday, a squall broke out with gale force winds, battering the disciples' boats, threatening to take it down as Jesus napped in the stern. And they woke him up crying, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? The Bible tells us in Mark 4.39, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. The wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. I gave you one word Wednesday night. There's actually two words he used there. Siopao, fimuo. Siopao, fimuo. In, in the Greek, it literally means, Hush, be muzzled. Be muzzled. That's an interesting thing to say to the sea and the wind. Be muzzled. I understand. Be still. That makes sense. Settle down, you know. But be muzzled as if you're putting something over the mouth of something else. Well, a few weeks earlier, Jesus and His disciples were in the seaside town of Capernaum. And Jesus went into the synagogue to teach. And there in the synagogue, another squall broke out. A man stood up in the middle of church and started shouting down Jesus. He started saying, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. This man had a demonic spirit. It's interesting in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 27 tells the story. Jesus said the same thing He would later say to the wind and the waves. He said, be muzzled. Femuo, be muzzled. In both instances, in the calming of the sea and in the quieting of the demon, Jesus uses the same exact phrase. In fact, every time Jesus cast out a demon, he used the same phrase he used on the wind and the sea. Be muzzled. Why? Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.2. That the calming of the sea was more than a calming of nature and a power over a supernatural power over the natural. It was also a supernatural power over what Satan was trying to do. It was a murderous attempt in that moment to capsize the boat, drown the apostles, and kill the Son of God. That's what Satan was up to, and Jesus knew it. So he said, be muzzled. You who have power over the air, be quiet. It's taken from you. When he muzzled the demon in the synagogue, he again was shutting down a noisy distraction. Jesus was teaching. How precious. What a wonderful thing. I mean, I I would love, when we go to Israel, we go into this same synagogue in Capernaum. And I love just being there. Just the thought that right here Jesus taught. I would love to sit down on that marble floor and listen just to the teaching of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if someone next to me started heckling, I would just, you know. <laughs> because I wouldn't want the interruption, the distraction. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? I don't mean hit someone beside you. And please don't. But to shut the mouth of the enemy from accusations and attacks and distractions. Wouldn't you love to just instantaneously speak a word and all the noise of the enemy is silenced? Well, I think Job might have appreciated that power himself. It's interesting that, as you may recall, the book of Job is divided into three sections. There's a prologue, the dialogue, and the epilogue. And the prologue is just the first two chapters. The epilogue is the last 
ten verses of the last chapter, and the dialogue covers chapter 3 through chapter 42, verse 7. So the, the, the whole of the book of Job is set there in the dialogue. But here's what's interesting to note and why we're still here in chapter 2 this morning. The only time Satan is heard is in the prologue. You're not going to hear from him again in this book. Hallelujah. We don't really need to hear from him. But suddenly, he's just gone. He's not here. Chapter 3 through 42, he he disappears. And, And at the very end, he's not there even when God begins to deal with Job and talk to him. Satan is a hit and run terrorist. This is what he does. He's a shoot and scatter kind of a coward. Fire off a volley and then hide in the shadows. Strike from the dark and slink away until a more opportune time. He'll create whatever disturbance or distraction or destruction he can and then he just disappears having detoured us from God's reality. From God's truth. Well, before we leave the prologue of Job, before Satan disappears back into his hidey hole, I want to continue to think about a couple of things. We were talking about spiritual warfare on on Wednesday night. And about how Satan acts and why he does what he does. Even about how he thinks. We have some insight into how Satan thinks. He assumes, take away everything that belongs to Job and he'll curse God. Why? Because that's what Satan would do. Because so twisted is his mind that he assumes that we're going to respond the way he would with evil. And then finally, when that doesn't work, he says, hey, hey, ruin his life physically and he'll curse you. Well, why would Satan say that? Because that's what he would do. And so he assumes that's what Job is going to do. Respond with evil. Which is why humility and love and forgiveness and repentance are so powerful because Satan does not understand that. He simply doesn't get it. Well, the adversary comes back here after destroying Job's life Materially, he comes back to destroy it physically. He has a new plan to undermine Job's faith and God's credibility, which, by the way, don't miss this. The whole of the book of Job, Satan is trying to undermine the credibility of God, the legitimacy of God and His righteous servant. Now, a few things to note in this. As the chapter begins, we see Satan come back before God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. This is the second appearance, again, of Satan before the Lord. And what we're seeing here, and I want you to note this, we mentioned it briefly, but there's a, a different angle on this. What we're seeing here is a creature's accountability. In both instances where he wants to attack Job, Satan must first come before the Lord. He first is presenting himself. He's a creature. Satan is a created being. Just as you and I are created beings, so Satan is created. Ezekiel 28.15 tells us, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Satan has not always existed. Satan is not the anti-God, the opposite of God in power and eternity. No, he's a created being like one of the angels. In fact, a better opposite for Satan would probably be Michael. Because Satan was called an anointed cherub, an archangel, as Michael himself is. But even after Satan is cast out of heaven, he continued and continues to this day to be required to give an account of what he's doing before God. Now, if you weren't here Wednesday and you missed this discussion about Satan actually having access to heaven and being able to come before God, I invite you or encourage you to go back and listen. Because we looked at that biblically and took some time to show how, yes, Satan has access to heaven right now. He doesn't reside there. He resides here. But he has access there and he has to go before the Lord to account for what he's doing. He cannot act on his own. He has to get permission. Now, that can be a troubling thought. Wait a minute. So you're saying God is allowing the torment and evil and pain that we see Satan doing on earth? God knew about it? He's letting it go on? That's exactly what I'm saying. The alternative to that would be God doesn't really have a clue. He doesn't know what's happening. He's... You know, he's busy over here in in some country other than America and and he's distracted over here and someone says, uh, an angel comes and says, hey, do you know what Satan's doing? What? What, What's he up to? 
The alternative to God having full awareness of the activity of Satan would be God being that proverbial old man who's kind of uh, cluing out. Doesn't really understand what's happening on earth. Is kind of disconnected from us. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God in whom I believe and whom I have my faith. And in fact, rather than being troubling, it brings me great comfort to know God is never surprised. He's never shocked. He's never caught off guard. He's never standing there, you know, with his hands in his pockets going, well, what are we going to do about this? Because he is almighty. He is Shaddai, as we see the name used 31 times in this book. But there's a personal thing to know here. And again, if you're struggling with that, please go back and listen Wednesday. But the personal thing is this. All creatures must and will give an account to God. Not just Satan, not just the angels. All creatures. Every created being by the Father is accountable to the Father. Hebrews 4.13 tells us there's no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Those who reject the Lord today cannot avoid accounting to the Lord tomorrow with whom we have to do. Now, those who reject the Lord might respond by saying, well, why do we have to have anything to do with God? I don't want to have anything to do with God. I reject his, even His existence. So I just don't, I'm just saying, lock, stock, and burial, burial, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. Listen, He is Creator, your creature. You have no choice. You have freedom right now to choose how you're going to respond. But you have no choice but to give an accounting of yourself before the Lord at some point. You will account before your Creator. You can choose not to accept redemption now, bought for you by Jesus' blood on the cross, but you will have to account for yourself. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And in verse 15 of that chapter, he said, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is not a Christian's judgment, by the way. It's not a believer's judgment. This is a judgment for all those who say, I don't want to deal with God right now. I'll just deal with Him later. I'm not going to give an account of myself right now. I'm not going to turn to the Lord right now. I'll do it at some point future. Well, at some point future, you will give an accounting. You will stand before the Lord, books will be open, and the book that you will be judged by is the book of deeds. What did you do with your life? How did you spend your life? What things did you do, good and bad? And the tragedy is, nobody whose name is written in the book of deeds will be saved. Only those whose names are written in the book of life, and the only way to get your name written in the book of life is to believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It's not an optional accounting game. Every wrong will be righted. Every crime will be punished. Which is why, by the way, Satan has to go before the Lord to give an accounting of himself. Because every evil thing that he has done will be paid for. There will be ultimate justice payback for everything Satan has done. He will deal with this eternally. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why would Satan go before God here in the book of Job? He is accounting for what he's doing. And you know what? What Satan does to Job in this book will be paid for. And what Satan has done against you in your life will be paid for. And that little tiny voice of vengeance inside of me that likes good justice at the end of a movie says, yes! (laughs) He is going to pay. Because God is completely just. Now, what about Christians? Well, Jesus' followers will have to give an account as well. Not for salvation. Because you see, faith in Jesus buys you Grace, His blood buys you grace. And grace says you're saved. You're saved. Well, So why do we have to give an accounting? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. But it's a joyful accounting. This is a good accounting. It's not to decide on our salvation. It's an accounting for reward. What would you do? Hey, you're saved. You're getting in. But what did you do? 
And based on what you did, well, Jesus said, Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. My reward's with me. There's going to be a great ceremony. Remember that in elementary school? I don't know if you did that, but they always had the little ribbons, you know, funniest and you know, best looking. I always was hoping for best looking, t- tended to get funniest. And I guess it was an reward, so at least I got something. But that's the thing. There's going to be the passing out of rewards. But note this. All creatures of our God and King will give an account to Him. Look at verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Considered is a word that means spied on. Have you examined? Have you been keeping an eye on him? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Note those two words. Without cause. It's the Hebrew word hanam. And I point it out because the Lord is throwing back into Satan's face the exact words Satan used to accuse Job in chapter 1, verse 9. When Satan said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hinnom? Does Job fear God without cause? And now God turns around and said, You incited me to ruin him without cause. Theologically speaking, this is the nana, nanana of the Lord. You write that down. That's five nas. Okay? My point is this. Job did nothing to deserve these attacks. Be clear on that. I told you last week, I used to think, well, maybe the problem was Job's pride, and so God was taken down his pride. Job did nothing to deserve these attacks. Now, God is at work in Job's life doing something. Remember, God wants him to turn to him, not just turn from his sin. But Job is still, at this point, a blameless man. He's up there with the best of the best. He is attacked without cause. In other words, number two, this is a causeless affliction. Job's pain was undeserved. He didn't do anything to get it. It just was brought to him. Satan goes on the attack. And if you've ever said, Lord, what did I do to bring this pain into my life? The answer may very well be nothing. You didn't do anything. Lord, why am I feeling this way? Why am I hurting like this? I I must have done something back there in my past. And it's very likely that you may be in a time of pain in your life and there's no reason that you have caused. It is an affliction without cause, a causeless affliction. The Lord could say to you, you didn't cause this. Look, I'm not angry with you. I'm not punishing you. I'm not reprimanding you. But I am going to see you through this. Jesus saw the blind man through his years of suffering. John chapter 9 says, As Jesus passed by, a man was, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus said it was neither this man or his parents who sinned. It was so the works of God might be displayed in him. The blind man hadn't done anything to deserve his blindness. But Jesus says, but it was given to him on purpose. Because there's going to be something great here. And of course, in that chapter, John chapter 9, the blind man is healed. And, and the whole town, the, the whole city of Jerusalem is a buzz, it's a stir. Wow, what's going on? And God is glorified. Oh, okay, so you're saying the works of God. You mean miraculous healing, right? That God afflicts people and then miraculously heals them for His glory. Maybe. Maybe not. Can God display His works in you without healing you? Without doing a great supernatural miracle? Is it possible that His glory could be seen in even greater ways sometimes when we are not healed of our afflictions? Hey, supernatural physical healing can certainly display God's work in you. No question about that. But His works can also be powerfully displayed in your suffering. Remember what he said to Paul? 2 Corinthians 12.9 Paul's saying, could you just take away this source of pain, this thorn in my flesh, this suffering? And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. As far as we know, God never took away that pain from Paul. 
How did Paul respond to it? He said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I've shared a few times before, my grandmother on my mother's side spent the last 16 years of her life flat on her back, paralyzed with a tumor in her spinal cord. 16 years. And when it all began, they said she wouldn't live through the night. But in those 16 years, I can tell you with assurance, God was glorified over and over and over in ways I I don't even have time to talk about. Can God bring glory through your suffering without healing? And I'm not saying this to be discouraging to those of you who are praying for. We are called to pray for healing. We are going to look for healing in all lives, in all struggles, with each one who is afflicted in some way or another. But know as a believer in Jesus Christ that there is so much God can do in you if you will let it be about His will rather than yours. In the unavoidable reality of spiritual warfare, my friends, there will be affliction without cause. There will be unfounded persecution. There will be unfair judgments. There will be baseless accusations made against you that you didn't bring about. It's just the way it is. Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said in John 15.18, Hey, if the world hates you, it hated me first. In fact, he says, that's why the world hates you. Because it hates me. What I'm saying here, gang, is don't be so quick to assume God is punishing you. More often than not, people of faith, it may be the chanam of the adversary, the without cause. It may be an undeserved affliction. But the Lord allows it. Why? Because it will draw us closer to Him. Because it shows an example of faith in a faithless world. I'll tell you what, if your suffering brings about salvation for somebody else and you are never healed of it, but they are saved, how can you ask for anything better? Another life for eternity. The Lord may even allow the suffering to glorify His name. Oh, Satan has his agenda. And it's all messed up, twisted and evil. But God's greater agenda always wins. I was talking with a sister last Sunday talking about a struggle that she was dealing with. And she made this statement as we were talking about it. She had tears in her eyes and she said, you know, I I guess I just, more than anything else, I want an increase of faith. (laughs) And here you are in struggle. And more than anything else, you want an increase of faith. Guess where faith increases? In our pain. In our struggles. In our afflictions. When we trust the Lord through the worst of these circumstances, our faith expands and grows. Are you willing to be a vessel of glory to the Lord even in the midst of the storm in your life? I'm not, you don't have to answer that right away. Maybe it's something to pray about. Am I willing, really? If Satan takes me down to rise up and praise God's name. Boy, if it will honor the Lord, if it will save a life, if it will grow your faith, these are all good reasons to hang on to the Lord even in your trials, your afflictions. But speaking of the storm, I still want to take a lesson on silencing Satan. Man, if I'm going to be in pain, I want him to be muzzled. I want his mouth shut. I want to hear the Lord. I don't want to hear the enemy. Well, gang, it begins by understanding that the Lord alone has the power to muzzle Satan. Okay, God has that power. Even the angels know enough to entrust the muzzling of the enemy to the Lord. Some of you Bible students may recall Jude verse 9 tells us Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, another discussion for another time, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now why would Michael say that? Because he saw Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves. <laughs> and it worked. And he saw Jesus rebuke the demons, and it worked. And Michael knows his place in the scheme of things and recognizes the power to shut the mouth of the enemy belongs to the Lord. Tell you what, when you're in spiritual warfare, when you're praying against something, when you're asking, when you're trying to fight back against Satan, probably the worst thing you can do is try to talk directly to him. 
If you do at all, say, the Lord rebuke you. And call on Jesus to silence the mouth of the enemy. Because you don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of power. Sometimes in our arrogance and cockiness, we forget who we're up against here. And so we call on the Lord. And like Michael the archangel say, the Lord rebuke you. Michael's name, by the way, means who is like God. Michael knew his place. And he knew there was no one like God. But there... There are other ways that you can go about the silencing of the enemy. I'm not talking directly. You don't have the power to call down the, you know, the muzzle and to put it on Satan's head and tighten it there. But there are things you can do that shuts the enemy up. The reason why I believe, remember, we're in the prologue of Job and suddenly Satan goes quiet. Why is that? Well, I believe Job is responding. And in Job's response, Satan's like, I guess I'll wait for another shot. I guess I'll slink away. Job doesn't speak to Satan. Job doesn't speak about Satan a single time in this book. He speaks to his friends and Job speaks to the Lord. But he doesn't address the devil. And in the story we never hear from the devil again. What is it ultimately that silences Satan in the book of Job? And here it is, number three. A claim to adversity. A claim to Adversity. Verse 10, powerful statement. Job says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? Job owns it. In that moment he says, Suffering or goodness, I receive it. I accept it as from the Lord. He didn't even say, This is Satan attacking me. He just said, Whatever the Lord brings. Good or bad. Righteousness or evil. I accept it. And after this moment, Satan is silent. You don't hear from him again. Job's friends, they're going to throw out all kinds of foolish condemnation and advice. But a faith like this, that lays claim to adversity, puts a sock in the mouth of Satan. I like that. We can learn from that. Keep your Bible, your finger there in Job and go over to Revelation chapter 12 again, which is a great parallel in many ways to what's happening in Job and in dealing with Satan. Revelation chapter 12, we looked at Wednesday. There was one verse I left hanging. And I want to look at it now. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 8. We'll look at verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This is speaking of a time yet future. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And we talked about how, this. yes, this happened before that Satan was kicked out of heaven but still has access. But in this moment, Revelation 12 is de- describing a time when Satan is cast out never to have access to heaven again. From this point forward, Satan is barred and cannot go back before the Lord. And his days are numbered. And it tells us, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And by the way, if you skip down to verse 12, here's one of the reasons we know that this is a time yet future. It says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. How much time at this point? Three and a half years. At that point, when Satan is finally disbarred completely from heaven, he has three and a half years, and he knows the days are are being numbered. The clock is ticking fast. And that's the latter half of the tribulation, and Satan goes nuts. But... Verse 11 describes the overcomer with three characteristics. Listen to this. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. I love these three points. In fact, I've wanted to talk about this since we did the Revelation study back in 2006. They overcame Him three ways. Number one, the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. It's Jesus' blood that saves us. So even when we talked about earlier the accountability, 
That accounting we give to God is not an accounting of salvation. His blood saved us already. That accounting is going to be for reward. But we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. It cleanses us from all sin. The damning stigma is gone. Sin holds no power over me eternally. Praise God. Satan can no longer make that old stuff stick. It's not been washed with the blood of the Lamb. And furthermore, we overcome by the word of our testimony. Now this is important. Because the church is, I think we've misunderstood what our testimony really is. The word of our testimony, it is not the evil that we've turned from. That is not your testimony. And it's also not the good that you've achieved. That's not your testimony. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, Paul writes, Ephesians 2.8. Your greatest testimony, listen, your greatest testimony is not who you were then, it's who you are now because of Jesus. Your testimony is Him in you. It's Christ in you. It's what Christ has done. It's who He is. It's His grace poured out. It's not the life lived then, it's the life in Christ now. That's my testimony. We're not called to run around the world and talk about how sinful and horrible we were. But to talk about how good Jesus is today. There are people who hang on their testimony from 30 years ago. And they go around and they talk about what happened back then. What's He doing for you lately? How are you walking with Jesus now? Here's a testimony for you. Yesterday, the Lord spoke to me in an amazing way and brought me incredible comfort. Really? Yeah. Not 30 years ago? Yesterday? Yeah. Well, this morning I woke up talking to the Lord. It was great. There's a testimony. It's the grace of Jesus in your life right now. The word of our testimony. It's Romans chapter 10. The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That phrase, word of Christ, is literally the spoken word of the name Christ. Hear it that way. He's not talking about faith comes from reading the the Bible, although it does. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, Christ. The Word of our testimony. By speaking Christ. That's where faith comes from. You want to see faith arise in the hearts of people around you who don't believe right now? Speak Christ. Speak Jesus. Share the Word Christ with them. Mashiach, Savior. That's the Word of our testimony. The grace of God now. But this last one, especially when looking at Job's life, is huge. They did not love their life even when faced with death. So the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and number three, love not your life. Love not your life. Overcoming is not through finding and loving yourself. That's where the good people go. That's what the good people that we talked about last week. That's where the good people run. Self-love. Self-accomplishment. Self-achievement. Philanthropic works. That serve, really when you look at it, to make me feel better about my life. Why do you see so many Hollywood stars and starlets out there doing things in the world? Because it makes them feel better. Because they're feeling a little guilty about all the accolades they get, really for doing nothing. You can train a monkey to do what most stars do. Not all of them. There's some good ones out there. But they begin. We we all know this, gang. People get lifted up for being able to do something, and there's an emptiness there because, like, I'm really not doing. I'm just getting paid a lot to, you know, act like someone else. And so, to make themselves feel better, they engage in all kinds of, you know, works in the world. That's where the good people go. The overcomer loves not his or her life. Graced people don't go to their works. Graced people run to Jesus. They lose themselves in loving the Lord. Jesus said, Luke 9.23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He says, follow me. And so we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and loving not our life even when faced with death. Okay. If that's where I have to go, okay. I'm alright with that. As long as God is glorified. As long as the name of Christ is lifted up. I love not my life. I love my Lord. And I give my life to Him. 
And so Job said, should we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, there's a problem. And the problem comes when our pain or our suffering or our affliction of whatever it is, when it goes from days into weeks, and from weeks into months, and from months into years. And suddenly the idea of being an overcomer doesn't sound so motivational. Tell you what, if you've got a head cold right now, and we talk about being overcomers, you can walk out here and go, yes, I'm going to be healed for Jesus. I'm going to use this for the Lord. You can feel pretty good about that. But if, like Michelle, you've had that flu bug for six weeks, it starts to get hard. When you find out you have cancer, and you go through treatment, and, and you're healed of it, and it goes into remission after a few months, yes, overcomer. But if it goes into year 9, 10, 15, sermons about overcoming sometimes are not enough motivation to help you get from one day to the next. Pain is not so easy to embrace when it never goes away. Well, why should we embrace pain after all? After Job responds with great faith, time goes on, you can almost hear Job's faith weaken as the book continues. As we read through this book, and we'll track this thing going on, he begins to question a little bit more. He begins to get a little bit more upset. The faith that he expresses here in the first two chapters, it begins to wobble a bit. He never loses it, but it wobbles until the Lord steps in. One Bible commentator wrote the following, No one deserves suffering less than Job. And no one endured suffering more than Job. Really? I would suggest that before writing a Bible commentary, you read the Bible. Because this guy clearly missed something here. No one deserves suffering less than Job. No one endured suffering more than Job. Can you think of someone who did? (laughs) Jesus did nothing wrong ever. Jesus was absolute perfection in the flesh. He deserved nothing of the suffering He endured. He endured more suffering than anybody in all history. Isaiah 52.14 says His appearance was marred more than any man. Remember Job's friends? They saw Job and they couldn't recognize Him? They see Him and said, what is that down? And they lifted up their eyes at a distance, did not recognize Him, raised their voices and wept in verse 12. Jesus was marred more than that more than any man Isaiah 53.3 he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face he was despised and we did not esteem him now listen why should we accept suffering as Job did let me give you the number one reason why should we accept our suffering our affliction our pain like Job did let me ask you this Who here wants to be more like Jesus? If you want to be more like Jesus, that is your motivation to accept any and all suffering. Because as we accept suffering, we become more Christ-like. And to me, there is no other thing I can hand you that is greater than that right there. If we accept and walk in our suffering, we become more like Jesus. You know, we have marketed Jesus in such a way that I fear discipleship looks more like, well, what we call discipleship is really pseudo-discipleship. Virtual Christianity. It's not real. Which is why people fall away from faith because they're not being discipled in the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is, for good or ill, I am following Jesus Christ. The truth is, if I suffer in my life, it makes me more like Him, and I praise Him for that. Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul said in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 
Philippians 3.8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. Because the journey to Christ's likeness, true discipleship, my friends, is made on the path of pain and hardship and struggle. It's in that place where faith is refined and where you become more and more like Jesus. And there comes a point, there comes a point on the journey when the days turn into the weeks and the weeks into months and months into years of adversity and we actually begin to love Jesus more than our own life. And that's what I want. And I say that with a little trembling. But that's what I want. I want to love Jesus more than my own life. As far as I can tell, there's only one way to get there. It's through the path of affliction. That will, by the way, silence the adversary once and for all. When you love Jesus more than anything that happens to you, circumstantially, Satan is silenced. And faith is lifted up. And we actually become a Christ-like people. Jesus, Your Word this morning is, is a difficult one because even as I speak it, there are brothers and sisters of mine here who are suffering more adversity than I am, far more. People who have gone through years of, of pain and, and heartache. Physical pain, Father, and, and mental anguish and emotional turmoil. And Father, we find great comfort knowing that You are aware of all these things and knowing that Your Spirit is here to bring us that peace that passes understanding. But Lord, we still struggle with the hurt and we struggle with the anguish and there are moments when many of us have spoken the words, I don't think I can go one more day like this. And I pray, Father, I'm asking, Lord, would You pour out Your grace in that moment that when those words are spoken, we will recognize Jesus' presence. I pray that those who have suffered especially a longer-term affliction, Father, that they will see what we see in them, and that is Jesus. Father, in this path, in this life, in this journey, we want to know Jesus more. And it can be a frightening thing to step into that and to lay our life on the altar and say, okay, Lord, use me and take me and do what You will. But Father, ultimately, we recognize You have our eternity in mind. And so I pray again for the grace to sustain us when we are struggling. Father, the word of peace and comfort to come at the right time and the right moment when it's most needed. And through this all, Father, I ask that You will continue to form us and make us more like You. In Jesus' name, Amen.